Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. This is the second of two episodes covering the murder of Harry Oakes. If you haven't listened to the first part, go check it out and come back here for the final part. Even before Nancy Oakes learned of her father's brutal murder, her life had been in utter disarray. For starters, she was an 18-year-old woman who had married Alfred de Marigny, a man nearly twice her age, without her parents' consent. Though her folks, Sir Harry and Lady Eunice Oakes, didn't demand a divorce or annulment, they made their displeasure known from the start, going so far as to set up separate bedrooms for the married couple when they stayed at one of the Oakes' posh homes in their adopted Bahamas home. That did not go over well. The friction drove a wedge between Nancy and her mother especially, So much so that Nancy had even written a letter to Lady Eunice that basically said, hey, if you make me choose, just a heads up, I won't choose you. But that wasn't the only strife in Nancy's life. During her 1942 honeymoon, she got terribly sick. She contracted typhoid fever and was in a Mexican hospital for weeks, after which it was determined that she needed painful oral surgery because her gums were so diseased that parts were exposed to the bone. Though their relationship was strained, Nancy's mother nursed her back to health, and her father Harry insisted that he and his daughter's new husband take a trip together. They did, and according to Alfred, Harry shared with him some plans. He said he planned to liquidate his holdings in Nassau, Bahamas' capital city, and move either to Mexico or Santo Domingo. It seemed he was suspicious about one of his business partners in Nassau, though he didn't elaborate. After the duo returned to the Bahamas, Nancy mentioned she was pregnant. Whatever smoothing had happened during Alfred's trip with Harry was instantaneously undone. Harry hired a doctor who advised that Nancy was too ill to carry a baby to term, and over her husband's objections, Nancy agreed to terminate the pregnancy. To recover from that, and from the typhoid fever and the dental surgeries and all the other stuff, Nancy went to New York with her mother for a bit. She was there when a telephone call came from Harold Christie, one of Harry's business associates and closest friends, sharing the grimmest of news. He said he'd found her father dead that morning. Not just dead, horribly murdered. From a documentary posted by Views on the News. How horribly murdered can you be? Well... There are four holes in Harry's head. And Christy initially says this was probably made by a miner's tool. Not only that, Harry Oak's body had been covered with insecticide and had been set on fire. And there were feathers all over the body 
including his eyes being burned out. I mean, this is some gruesome-ass murder. The details were shocking enough, but the investigation and trial that followed were newspaper fodder for months, while the murder itself remains one of history's most enduring and disturbing. Businessman and Bahama resident Harold Christie said that he and Harry Oakes had had a lovely evening together July 7, 1943, that began with a small dinner party and ended the same way such evenings often ended, with Christie staying in a guest room at Westbourne, Oakes's palatial home in Nassau. Christie sent Harry's staffers home for the night, and the two men stayed up talking in Harry's bedroom until about 11 p.m., Christie said. Afterward, he said he had slept well that night, heavily even, outside of waking up twice, once to swat at mosquitoes, and again when his room was rattled by thunder during an overnight storm. Neither event kept him up long, though, and when he awoke for the morning, he had no inkling anything might be amiss. This might sound overly intimate for two men who were just friends, and to be sure, some people in hindsight have speculated that perhaps there was more to the relationship than the men were willing to admit publicly, despite no definitive evidence of an intimate or sexual relationship between the two of them existing. Christie was 47 years old at this point, and he had never been married or had any children, and Christie's designated guest room was connected to Harry's by a Jack and Jill bathroom. The rooms also shared access to a wraparound porch, where the two men would have breakfast together around 7 a.m. whenever Christie stayed the night. That's what Christie said he was expecting to do the morning of July 8th. He woke up and, still barefoot and wearing pajamas, went to the veranda through an exterior door from his bedroom. Harry wasn't there yet, which wasn't unusual. Christie normally woke him up for their shared breakfasts. Christie pushed open an exterior door from the veranda and stepped into Harry's room. This description is from the book A Conspiracy of Crowns. Quote, Then and only then was he aware of the foulness of the scene, bloody handprints on the wall, a wisp of smoke, and the body of Harry Oakes, battered and unmoving. He found the body still warm from life or from the heat he couldn't know. He lifted Sir Harry's head, he said, and put a pillow under it. Then he took a flask of water and put it to the dead man's lips. He wet a towel and wiped his friend's face. He opened the door to the balcony and called for help, hoping to be heard by Madeline Kelly, who lived next door. End quote. No one responded, so Christie said he ran downstairs and called Mrs. Kelly instead, asking her to come quickly. Next, he called his brother Frank and said Harry was hurt, maybe even dead. And he told Frank to come quickly with the doctor. Now, in some accounts of this tale, people claim Christie did not call the police. And upon seeing this, Harold Christie reports it to the police. No, no, not the police. He lets the Duke of Windsor know this. And the first thing the Duke of Windsor does is proclaim a total news boycott. We're not going to let any news out of here about this. This isn't quite right, but it's understandable why it's often reported. Christie said that after he called his brother, he called the police commissioner, Colonel R.A. Erksine Lindop. But the colonel wasn't home, so he left a message with his wife. 
Then he called the Duke of Windsor, who also served as the governor of Bahamas. A quick recap, the Duke had reigned over England as King George VIII, but he abdicated the throne in the 1930s because of love, he said, after which he was more or less exiled to the Bahamas. It's still fair to say that the order of Christie's calls was odd. Why call Mrs. Kelly next door before calling the police? Why did Christie have everyone on speed dial except a doctor to avoid the round-robin wrangling of one through his brother? I have no idea. A generous reading of the situation is that Christie was in shock and not thinking clearly. That would explain his next blunder, which came when the telephone rang. On the line was a reporter who had an interview planned with Harry and was calling beforehand to confirm they were still on. To the reporter, Etienne Dupuche, Christie blurted, He's dead. He's dead. The confused reporter asked, Who? Sir Harry. He has been shot. Yes, he reportedly said shot. We'll put a pin in that and circle back to it. Dupuche replied with shock. Are you serious, he asked. This is a very big news story, Mr. Christie, and I'm a journalist. I propose to cable it around the world. You are certain. Christie said he was sure, and Depuche hustled and had the headline out within a few hours. So yeah, the media boycott the Duke of Windsor wanted didn't happen. From an episode of Great Crimes and Trials of the 20th Century. The Duke told Christie to keep the news secret, but it was already too late. Soon, it was on front pages all over the world. Now, Christie's forte was real estate. He'd been born poor in 1896 to an old Nassau family with Scottish roots. His dad had trouble holding down jobs, and when Christie grew up, he was determined to leave that instability and poverty behind. In a conspiracy of crowns, he's described as rumpled and homely, but with the gift of persuasion. Quote, Harold Christie was a world-class salesman who sold not just real estate, but dreams, end quote. He also sold rum, during Prohibition anyway. He'd buy the stuff from all over, hoard it in Nassau, then sell it to bootleggers in Florida, where it would make its way across the country. After that industry dried up, he set to work as a self-appointed ambassador to Nassau luring folks with money to move there, not just for the gorgeous beaches, but for the minimal taxes. Income taxes weren't a thing there, and when you died, the state only took 2% of your personal estate and none of your real estate. It was Christie who had convinced Harry Oakes to move to Nassau to avoid Canada's comparatively exorbitant tax rates. The thing with Christie, though, is that he was a mover and a shaker, but not much of a moneymaker, or money holder onto her, anyway. He'd relied on Harry for lots of loans and, in fact, had been in the midst of some land deals with Harry that had gone sideways. The two had some pretty mafia-esque insider deals in which Harry would loan Christie money to build, say, an airport, and Christie was supposed to hire workers employed by Harry to do the actual construction. It was a big loop-de-loop system. But Christie decided at some point that their initial plan was too small scale, and he ended up hiring some other workers who so happened to be connected to an actual mafioso. Harry felt double-crossed. Then, on July 6, Harry learned another business arrangement with Christie had fallen through. From the documentary Blood on the Palms by a company called Expedition Freewill. 
Harioks had sent one of his men to Big Darby Island to confirm a delivery of a flock of sheep from Australia that Christie had assured him had arrived. The island had been used for decades as a very profitable plantation. However, when Oak's man returned, he told Harry that there was no sheep to be found on the island. That was strike two against Christie, and Oakes wasn't known for being an especially forgiving guy. He had lent Christie a lot of money over the years. In fact, Harry accounted for some 80% of Christie's business dealings, and not only was he starting to grumble to his underlings that Christie had screwed him, he was also disenchanted with the Bahamas as a tax-free paradise to boot. He'd even started sending money to accounts in Mexico and had told close associates that he planned to leave the Bahamas soon. On the morning he discovered Harry's murdered body, however, Christie relayed none of these business woes to Nancy or Lady Eunice Oakes, whom he called soon after he alerted the Duke of Windsor. The Duke immediately involved himself in the investigation, which was counter to norm. Usually, a crime in the Bahamas would be investigated by the local police, but the Duke insisted this crime be handled differently. Harry Oakes was, after all, one of the richest men in the world. On top of that, he owned a lot of property in the Bahamas, and finally, he had some side hustles that the Duke probably didn't want exposed. If you heard part one of this two-parter, you'll remember that the Duke apparently had some Nazi-sympathizing leanings. Well... So did his friends. Perhaps one of the most powerful Nazi supporters in the Bahamas was a Swedish businessman by the name of Axel Wenergren, who became one of the richest men in the world by investing in industrial vacuums adapted for domestic use, as well as developing weapons for all nations during the war. He was a close friend of the Duke, as well as Ernan Göring, one of the top leaders of the Nazi SS. Wenergren was a major asset for the Germans. He supplied all kinds of weapons acting as the frontman for the industrial conglomerate Krupp used his national influence to keep Sweden neutral during the war, and financed the Nazis through his Bank of the Bahamas, as well as acting as an on-site financier of Nazi archaeological digs and treasure hunts. Wintergreen got in trouble when somehow he, his wife, and his yacht just so happened to be in the vicinity of a German submarine that had attacked a UK passenger line called the SS Athenia. Well, Wenner Green's wife claimed they had arrived to that spot because she'd had a dream that they should go there. British and U.S. intelligence agencies felt it was more likely that they were out there helping the Germans refuel their sub. This is a guy who was friends with all of the Bay Street Boys, that group of ultra-wealthy businessmen that included the Duke of Windsor, who basically ran the island. The U.S. and U.K. blacklisted Wintergreen from doing business in either place and put pressure on the Duke to freeze his accounts in Nassau, too. Wintergreen fled to Mexico, but he and the Duke would still have regular business meetings. Anyway, Wintergreen was still working behind the scenes and now being in Mexico, worked with his friend Maximino Camacho, brother of the president of Mexico, to launder Nazi-seized foreign money through a fake investment firm called Banco Continental. Wintergren made his services available to the Duke and all the Bay Street boys, where they jumped at the opportunity. Every single one of them was actively committing treason, and if one of them fell, they all would come crashing down. So keep this in mind as you hear about the Duke's involvement in Harry Oakes' murder investigation. Harry was among that powerful group of Bahamian businessmen laundering Nazi money, which included the Duke of Windsor. 
The first thing the Duke did was try to limit what journalists reported about the death, but that didn't work because Christie had blurted out that Harry had been shot to a reporter. After that, the Duke ordered that police officers from Miami come to the Bahamas immediately, and not because these were Miami's best detectives, mind you. Great crimes and trials of the 20th century again. At 10 to 11, the Duke rang the chief of police in Miami and asked specifically for Captain Edward Melcher, a detective who had acted as his bodyguard during holidays in Florida. The Duke also asked by name for Captain James Barker, who was a fingerprint expert. So these were two allies, if you will. The generous framing of that is that maybe the Duke felt he needed people he could trust investigating this thing. The cynical framing is that he wanted to feel safe that the investigation uncovered exactly what he wanted to uncover. As the two officers traveled to the Bahamas, no one from the local police secured the crime scene. People trampled all through it, picked up and examined items around the body, all that jazz. Once the Miami officers arrived, the only physical evidence they said they pulled from the room were fingerprints on a burned Chinese screen in Harry's room. And by the way, those fingerprints weren't even lifted immediately or handled properly. Captain Barker, the supposed fingerprint expert brought from Miami because of that specific expertise, didn't bring a camera with him and didn't ask the local police to borrow one. He shot no photos documenting which part of the screen he lifted prints from, and he punted on lifting prints immediately because he said the room was too humid for fingerprint dusting to work anyway. Truly, this was not a thorough investigation. The detective seemed surprisingly uninterested in the footprints which had been found on the stairs. They did not request a search of the grounds and seemed to attach little importance to finding and questioning the two night watchmen who had disappeared. When a post-mortem showed that Sir Harry's stomach contained an amount of black, viscous liquid, they did not feel it necessary to get a detailed analysis. Instead, they asked everyone close to Sir Harry Oakes to come to the mansion to be questioned. That's where the detectives met privately with the Duke, chatted with Harold Christie, and quickly set their sights on a suspect. Alfred de Marigny, the victim's son-in-law, who was... Tall, dark, handsome, and enormously attractive to women. And also controversial. Not only did Alfred have rocky relationships with the Duke and Harry Oakes, but... But more traditional Bahamas society hated de Marigny for his arrogance. They regarded him as a foreigner a dangerous womanizer, and a cat. For many on the island, it didn't seem a huge leap for Alfred to also be a killer. On the afternoon Harry Oakes was discovered dead, Alfred de Marigny would be among the many islanders asked to come to Westbourne to answer detectives' questions, but not straight away. Because there was a delay inherent in waiting for the Miami detectives to arrive, Alfred got to work tending his farm. Because of course he ran a chicken farm in the Bahamas. This makes sense, right? His neighbors were a little surprised when he launched that endeavor, but it was successful. He hired workers, mostly local Bahamians, and confounded the other Richies when he toiled alongside those workers as though he didn't consider himself above them. Because apparently he didn't. Now, his work on the chicken farm matters. On July 8th, after Harry's body was found, but before Alfred was asked for an interview, 
Alfred tended his farm because bad weather in recent days had meant there was a backlog of chicken orders. Alfred's farm manager, a Bahama native named George Thompson, was working to catch up, which meant killing chickens to deliver to the people on the island who had ordered them. After the men killed the chickens, they removed their feathers, the bulk of which was handled by machine, but the machine couldn't quite get the soft down that stuck to the bird. To remove that, the chickens were passed over a flame, which burned away the down. With his head still spinning from word of Harry's death, Alfred worked alongside George to catch back up on the chicken orders. He remembered at some point singeing his arms, which was an occupational hazard when passing chicken corpses over open flames. He also drove twice to the Nassau police station because he needed to register a new truck he had bought for the farm. The guy he needed wasn't there when he arrived, so Alfred left for an hour and then circled back, signed the forms, and headed back to the farm. This errand would later be used to illustrate his guilt. Prosecutors would argue that he appeared twice at the police station because he wanted to keep tabs on the investigation into the crime he committed. Anyway, once the Miami detectives summoned Alfred, their first question was, of course, where were you last night? Alfred said that he and his cousin, Georges de Vidaloux, had hosted a little dinner party. He had driven two of the guests home at about one o'clock. He acknowledged that his route home would have taken him past Westbourne. De Vidaloux confirmed this, revealing that he had seen de Marigny again at about three o'clock after driving another guest, Betty Roberts, home. See, de Vidaloux... He had gone to his friend's room to collect his pet cat, which had gone to sleep with him. The him there is Alfred, and actually, the exchange went something like this. Alfred, George, get your damn cat out of my room. He keeps waking me up. George, oh, sorry about that. Come here, kitty. So if the dinner guests and Alfred's cousin were to be believed, he had a pretty solid alibi for the night, save maybe 15 minutes. Still, that was enough time for police to say, hey, it's possible. After all, Alfred did admit to driving by the Westbourne mansion while taking one of his dinner guests home. Granted, it would have been an awfully tight time frame. Whoever killed Harry had to enter his room, administer four holes to his head, then set his body ablaze with particular emphasis on scorching his eye sockets and his genitals. But there's more. There was a stream of dried blood positioned in such a way that it defied gravity. As in, Harry had been on his stomach. When the blood started flowing, it dried in that position, and then Harry's body was repositioned on its back with the blood staying in place. I looked it up, and in most weather conditions, it takes about five minutes for blood to dry on skin. But this night in the Bahamas, it was hot, humid, and rainy. A violent storm passed through, blowing wind and rain into the room with enough force that it thwarted the apparent attempt to torch the crime scene. In short, that blood likely would have taken more than five minutes to dry. Meanwhile, Harold Christie was supposedly asleep in the next room. Like I mentioned earlier, he told police he'd woken up twice that night, once for mosquitoes and again when the noise from the storm jarred him awake. But otherwise, he heard nothing unusual, he said. Now, you might be wondering whether Christie was ever considered a suspect. Not by the Miami detectives who were in charge, but the Bahamian police were immediately dubious of his account 
in part because of what one of their own men reportedly saw the night Harry died. Captain Edward Sears, a senior traffic policeman who stated that he had seen Christie being driven down Bay Street at midnight. It had been raining, so Sears had been unable to see who else had been in the car. This was an officer who knew Christie, who recognized him. This directly contradicted Christie's claim that he had gone to bed at 11 and stayed the night. What's weird about Christie's alibi is that he insisted he was at the scene of the crime all night, and for some people, this made him less of a suspect, not more of one. Some figured that his insistence that he never left was proof he couldn't have done it because only an idiot would remain adamant that, yeah, I was in the next room when my friend was brutally murdered. Anyway, those who questioned Christie were silenced by Miami's revelation that they had forensic evidence proving that Alfred de Marigny was the killer. Not only did they find his arm hairs had been singed, which they said came from setting Harry's body ablaze, but they also said he left behind an important clue, a fingerprint. Miami detective James Barker, the fingerprint expert brought in without a camera to gather prints from Harry Oakes' bedroom, said that of the prints he lifted the day after Harry's murder, one single, solitary print was usable. And it so happened to be from Alfred de Marigny's right pinky. Alfred could not explain away this discovery. He insisted he not only had never touched that Chinese screen, but he said he hadn't seen Harry Oakes since Harry had pressured Nancy Oakes into having an abortion, which was three months earlier. Not only did he say he hadn't been in Harry's home, but he said he had never even laid eyes on the Chinese screen, much less touched it. Lucky for Alfred, his wife Nancy believed him. She hired private detective Raymond Schindler, the same sleuth who played a prominent role in our episode about the murder of Marie Smith in season one. Schindler believed Alfred was innocent and set about helping his defense lawyers to prove it. Alfred remained in a dank, depressing jail cell for four long months as he awaited trial for the murder. Once it began, it was one of the most sensational stories, not just in the Bahamas, but in the world. It had all the elements that people salivate over. Murder, money, sex, intrigue. Every day, people lined up to find seats in the courtroom where, by the way, Alfred wasn't seated at a defense table like you'd normally see in American courtrooms. He was literally held in a cage. Eunice, his mother-in-law, testified against him, describing how upset she and her husband had been when Alfred married her daughter and how Alfred and Harry had butted heads time and time again. But Nancy testified on Alfred's behalf, insisting that he bore no grudges against her parents for protesting their marriage and had signed away any right to an inheritance she might get once her father died. Other courtroom revelations were nothing short of sensational. The Miami detectives were not called until the second week. Then Melchin... That's Edward Melchin, who worked alongside James Barker. ...caused a sensation when he admitted under defense cross-examination that Barker had not told him about the discovery of the vital fingerprint on the Chinese screen for more than a week. When Barker was called, he was forced to admit that he had no proof that the fingerprint had actually come off the screen, since he had forgotten to bring his fingerprint camera to record it in position. 
The defense produced a series of specimens showing that any fingerprint lifted off the screen would inevitably have been much less clear than the print produced by Barker. Instead of following standard police procedure of dusting every print and photographing it in position before being witnessed, lifting it off with transparent tape, Barker had succeeded in destroying all but one of them. He could not refute the defense suggestion that this one could easily have come from the glass or cigarette packet that de Marigny had handled while being interrogated. Nor could Barker explain why he had not examined any of the bloodstains, the footprints, or the bloody handprint, and had allowed them to be destroyed without proper records being made. Did you catch all that? The fingerprints weren't collected straight away. They weren't photographed in place once they finally were collected. Only one of them supposedly even survived Barker's incompetent attempts to lift them. And that one pristine print made no sense because the background looked like it had been pulled from, say, a water glass rather than the sooty wooden frame of the Chinese screen it supposedly came from. In short, the evidence was weak. The trial lasted three weeks. Alfred testified on his own behalf. So did a couple of women who had been with him at the dinner party the night of the murder, as did the Bahamian officer, Edward Sears, who said he saw Harold Christie driving in a car with other men long after he testified that he had gone to bed that fateful night. Confronted with that testimony on the stand, Christie could only repeat his testimony and insist that Sears, who knew him well, must be mistaken. The jury acquitted Alfred after about 90 minutes of deliberation. They did say, however, that they considered him undesirable and recommended that he be deported. He left for Canada and tried at first to continue married life with Nancy, but their first year of marriage had been beyond traumatic and they didn't survive it. They got an annulment at Nancy's insistence and went their separate ways. De Marigny did remarry one final time to a woman he stayed with for some 40 years, until he died a rich recluse in Houston, Texas. The investigation into Harry Oakes' murder was never reopened. To this day, it remains officially unsolved. Even the cause of death isn't fixed. Some people believe the four holes in Harry's head were left by something like a pickaxe, So how the wounds managed to be so tightly clustered without crushing the area is cause for confusion. There was a strange occurrence when Harry's body was flown for an autopsy, though. The plane took off, then circled back, and for some reason was detained for a good 90 minutes without explanation. De Marigny posited in his book that the delay was to remove the bullets he believed were fired into Harry's skull. And why disguise a shooting, you might be wondering? Well, Alfred, who forever suspected Harry Christie's involvement, said he thought it was because it would be tough for Christie to explain how he slept through gunshots being fired into his best friend's head if he indeed had been asleep in the very next room. So as part of a Dougled cover-up, the bullets were removed. While we don't know for sure what happened the night Harry died, enough has come to light in the interim that there is a prevailing theory. It turned out that at least one of the police officers from Miami, James Barker, had been working for the Mafia, which had come to the Bahamas during Prohibition in the 1920s. The island served as a great hub for running illegal liquor into the United States. Crime chiefs such as Maya Lansky, who later took control of gambling in nearby Cuba, 
are believed to have also targeted the Bahamas. His interest coincided with that of some of the Bay Street boys, among them Harold Christie, who were determined to make the islands one of the world's gambling and tourist capitals. There was a problem with that plan, though, because gambling was forbidden on the islands, at least for locals. Some, like Christie and, reportedly, the Duke of Windsor, were keen to change this to keep the mob bosses happy, especially because they knew that both men had not been over-scrupulous in sending cash abroad from the islands in breach of the wartime British currency regulations. But Sir Harry Oakes was a holdout, and he was resentful when his buddies and the mob started pressuring him, especially after Christie had already screwed him over on that airport deal I mentioned earlier. Some believe that that fateful night in July 1943, Oakes demanded that Christie repay all his loans or else, and Christie either intentionally or accidentally killed him, then tried to cover up the act with fire. It so happened that an awful storm blew through the islands that night, putting out the fire before it could cover up the crime, and once it was clear there was no way to hide that the death was anything other than homicide, it was pinned on the man the Duke of Windsor disliked the most, Alfred de Marigny. Raymond Schindler, the private detective, wrote to the Duke after the trial and offered to keep working on the case. He wrote, quote, It is my considered opinion that the murderer of Sir Harry Oakes can be found, identified, convicted, and brought to justice, end quote. A story written in 1952, printed in the Orlando Sentinel, said that nine years after the murder, only two things were certain. First, that Alfred was not guilty of the murder, and second, that, quote, officials of Nassau have demonstrated that they don't want Schindler or anybody else to prove guilty the real killer of Sir Harry Oakes, end quote. For those holding out hope for a definitive answer, there is one tiny glimmer. Some case files are under seal until 2043, as in their contents were deemed enough of a risk to British national security that they wouldn't see the light of day until a hundred years after the crime. So maybe, just maybe, someday we'll learn the rest of the story. To research this story, I read A Conspiracy of Crowns, written by Alfred de Marigny with Mickey Herskowitz. This case was recommended by several Crimes of the Century's listeners, including Official Sarah B. 2.0. Thanks for the suggestion. For sourcing, I also listened to talks by author Charlotte Gray, who wrote Murdered Midas, A Millionaire, His Gold Mine, and A Strange Death on an Island Paradise. Tip of the cap as well to Views on News and Great Crimes and Trials of the 20th Century. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. 
If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>